I'm Prithvi Vatharajan, and thanks for joining me for this program of poetry exploring the loss of animal species. Red Room Poetry, in collaboration with Durham University Research Fellow Dr. Thomas Bristow, developed a series of poetic commissions called Extinction Elegies. Six eminent Australian poets were invited to write new poems responding to the extinction or endangerment of many spectacular local species, which are disappearing or have disappeared due to human activity in the Anthropocene. Through elegy, a poetic form typically used to lament human loss, the poets explore our emotions and empathy for losses in the non-human realm. In this episode, called Art and Science, we'll hear from the poets Bruce Pascoe and Mark Tredinick, who've written about the Azure Kingfisher and the tragedy of animal extinctions, as well as from Durham University Research Fellow Dr Thomas Bristow, who describes the tradition and form of the elegy. My name is Bruce Pascoe, and this is my poem, Loss. If your chest quavers and you are moved to touch, which finger would you choose? Well, take that finger, the one you would use to smooth the mauve eyelid of a lover, the one you'd test the moisture between your lips, just before you taste the temperature, texture, and salt of a full loving. Take that finger with all its memory and draw it across the crown of this frail head and watch the colour ululate. Ululate. A throat warble. A heart song. As the pressure of your loving finger depresses the napery of feather, let it progress, as a real lover would, to follow the curve from scalp to nape, where the bones are so tiny so heart-breakingly fragile, the tears well in your eye. Let your palm cup the body, the perfect curve of folded flight, the mighty power of feather and bone. Yet the lightest breeze can puff them from the page, but riffle the page itself, lighter than paper, stronger than gravity, weather, destiny, fate. But your finger can make it shimmer like velvet, Whisper like love. And love can be the reverence of a wetted finger, or the regret of a finger stalling on the nape of a dead bird. But it is still love, and only love. Some things pass, and we have caused it. Other things pass, and there is nothing we could have done. So love can be regret. But regret is always love. And regret is that the bird is gone, disappeared, because we didn't love enough, or because the angle of the sphere is out of our control. Also, just like love. This is my reflection on that poem. I was travelling through the Garrawood country 
looking at the trees altered by the old people for ceremonial purposes, and I kept thinking of an azure kingfisher which I'd found dead after colliding with a window the day before. And so my thoughts were all about beauty, death and love. And I'd experienced them all in one day. I live on a river, the Wallagra, which is the southern end of Ewan country, and I'm Ewan. And many of the birds have a, an association with me uh, through who I am and who my family is. Um, you know, things like cormorant and pelican, white-chested sea eagle, you know, wedge-tailed eagle, all of those birds have association with me, and yet I'm drawn to this little bird, um, and I know nothing about it in terms of Aboriginal law. I haven't found a mention of it in the law, but I'm sure that's just because we lost so much culture so quickly uh, that an insignificant little kingfisher got forgotten, you know, amongst the mighty eagles and the bigger plovers and the noisier birds because this bird is almost silent. And it's such a shame because it's such a powerful spirit of the river. Everybody remarks on it once they've seen it. I mean, I've seen the bird fly past people's eyes and they're not conscious of it. That's because any bird could fly past their eyes and they wouldn't be conscious of it. But those who see it, they really are stilled and awed by this beautiful thing. It's a real riverland bird um, in my country, which is salt water. It's on the bank of every river and it hugs the river. Um, most cases, it's only ever a metre off the water. In fact, it flies underneath my jetty, which is only about 10 inches above the water, um, and it hunts for little fish along there, perches on small trees and dives into the water for its food. But its colour is extraordinary. Its plumage is like satin. And so there's this um, neon blue and ginger on the front, and it is one of the most beautiful birds you'll ever see. And it's so small, but it's so fierce. It's a killer. You know, it dives on small fish, it's merciless, and yet it's so beautiful. Um, and it's always in these beautiful reaches of the river, it's one of the great sights. It's so tiny, um, and the forces against it are so strong, that you have to admire the resilience of such a tiny bird, that it can survive incredibly strong weather and and perhaps destiny and fate as well, which uh, the world is experiencing now, this enormous change. And being a, a fisher of rivers, uh, what does the future hold for it? But uh, so far, the weightlessness of this little creature has been enough to make it survive. So um, when you hold one in your hand, you feel almost nothing. There's no weight. It's all feather and hollow bone. For a 120,000 years Aboriginal people were managing the land. These days the acceleration of loss is causing enormous grief and I think sometimes we don't understand what we're grieving for but I believe we're grieving for this uh, loss of the natural world and our responsibility for it. I actually believe that um, we can't do a lot to affect the angle of the sphere, but we can do a lot to affect the atmosphere that surrounds it. And 
you know, that's clearly within our control. Look, there are sequences of climate change that are out of our control, but the one we're in at the moment, we're clearly contributing quite a load to it. That's the one we can affect. Um, So to throw up our hands and say that climate change is a natural sequence, which we know, um, but not address the vast change we're making ourselves, is arrogance and um, laziness. We can do a lot about it really easily. You know, my daughter-in-law got rid of plastic bags out of the town she lives in. You know, if one person can do that, then surely we can do something about polluting the atmosphere with too much heat and gas. The problem with poetry at the moment is that we don't have people reading it. Um, So a poem, in some ways, has all the power of the past of poetics, but in recent years, poetry is so little read that you've got to wonder how much change it's capable of making. But the reason we practice art is because wheels always turn, and we don't know when people will find the world insufficient and turn back to poetry to explain the unexplainable, and that's what poetry's good at. Thomas Bristow. I do a couple of things around the environment in terms of cultural studies. One is uh, research fellowships at University of Durham and Institute of English Studies, University of London, which is looking at the human relationship with our environment. It's clearly linked to a body of scholarship called eco-criticism, which pretty much tells you what it is through its name. It's how we critically look at our relationships with our ecologies. And then secondly, I'm involved in a number of publishing projects, and that goes from setting up Coral Sea Poetry here in Townsville, Queensland, to working with a number of centres and artists across the world who want to work with us to promote literature and the environment studies and practice. And tell me about the elegy. What is its tradition and subject matter? Elegy itself is a long-standing tradition in literature. It's one of the oldest, and because of that, we have to go back to classical literature to get an understanding of exactly what elegy is. It refers to the Greek term elegos, which means lament, which is verse written in couplets that cover a wide range of subject matter, death, love, and war. Following on that we get to more modern and restricted meaning of lament in maybe the 16th century where you might have a departed loved one or a tragic event. And that's often visited uh, through the British tradition, through colonialism and the loss of a lot of the population to other countries. You see humans starting to record loss of countryside, and this is particularly poignant in the 19th century in Britain. John Clare is a very good poet of the loss of countryside through enclosure and industrialism. With that loss of the countryside is a loss of habitat and a loss of species. So we do start to see it in John Clare, and he's influenced many poets, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, right across the Atlantic into America. A more modern sense of elegy comes to us after the two world wars and the huge scales of loss that are visited then. So elegy at this point struggles with terms of consolation and renewal in the way that it probably did in more classical periods. 
So right now in the 21st century, we're thinking, what can this long-standing form do and how might it be relevant to some of the issues we face in contemporary culture? There might be some confusion uh, among the general public uh, about the difference between the elegy and eulogy. Do you want to briefly explain that difference? Well, that's useful to think about because eulogy is really praise for something. It celebrates something and makes a distinct mark in culture that this thing is valuable and worth thinking about in these ways. Elegy is similar to that in that it really does want to make a record of something, but it's always a record of loss. And so the elegy has traditionally been used to mourn human loss. Um, what inspired or motivated you to ask poets to adapt the elegy form to the animal realm? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I'll just say a few words on extinction because uh, this is something that we now face and we have more literacy, more knowledge, more science about the rates of extinction now than we have before. We are entering the sixth great extinction where something like 90% of species are going to collapse. The moment of extinction is generally considered to be the death of the last individual of the species or a capacity to breed and recover. According to the science that's come in in 2019, the biomass of wild mammals has fallen by 82% and natural ecosystems have lost about half their areas. So millions of species are at risk. We could say 25% of plant and animal species are threatened with extinction. So we're looking at loss because of extinction, aren't we? And we have one specific tool, a literary tool, Elegy, that has looked at loss for centuries. So my thoughts were, why can't we take this literary form to the problem or question of extinction in this age to think out, has it got the capacity you know, to deal with this scale of loss? And would that be useful for us? The cultural work of Elegy, would that be useful for us in the context of the sixth great extinction? Two of our poets are very much engaged with environmental humanities work in Australia, John Kinsella and Stuart Cook. They've helped define what is the environmental humanities and also are shaping eco-poetics. Environmental humanities, really, if we think about it, discipline of the time. Humanities covers literature, philosophy, history, ethnography, those kind of things. Well, they're all now oriented towards the subject matter of the environment and what that might mean specifically for their discipline. However, the environmental humanities seems to be an interdisciplinary thing where people are looking at a single complex problem, something like extinction perhaps, or ocean acidification, and they're stepping backwards to look at all the different disciplines that can help address that problem, all these different knowledge systems. So a historian may well be looking at climate science, a literary scholar may well be looking at acidification levels. I suppose if animals are threatened and poets are elegizing the possible permanent loss of these animals, maybe it could be potentially a spur to action if the right people pick up that artwork or view it. Yeah, I don't know how instrumental artists are, but certainly as a publisher and editor, I am, and I want to try and attack that space. Mick Smith is quite good here. Uh, he's an environmental humanities scholar. He reminds us that species are significant for the world in that all things with life have effects and they carry with them various semiotic possibilities. 
To lose species, therefore, is to lose a form of openness on the world. The world is diminished, isn't it, when you don't have a rhino running through it in the way that a rhino would, or if there's a particular sunbird that you like in North Queensland, which are beautiful, by the way. Yeah, you're like, what kind of life does that thing have? And the world is the sum of all of these life experiences. So there's thinking about our diminished life as humans because there's less species out there. There's also thinking about the world just being less... Um, excellent than it is. I'm trying to think of a better way of putting it. The world basically impoverished. We're moving towards an impoverished world because of fewer species fleshing out the world in beautiful ways. So yeah, I think the poets are trying to harness the verb of life and the verb of poetry to keep things alive. That's very much what caring for country is about, isn't it? Keeping things alive in their place. So poetry speaks profoundly to that sense of sustaining the living verb of voice. Um, what are your future hopes for extinction allergies? Well, I think the first thing would be for us to get these poems together and have micro-essays on each extinction and publish that so we can clarify how the arts really does help us to imagine and collectively respond to the slow violence of our crisis. That's really the main project really to continue with these commissions and get them published and get them out. The second one is to focus more acutely in Australia and the first phase of that will be in Queensland, far north Queensland and one of the areas of focus will be the Coral Sea. We are seeing things, uh, the spatial and temporal patterns of mass bleaching of corals really changing. Tropical reef systems are transitioning to a new era in which the interval between recurrent bouts of coral bleaching is too short for a full recovery of mature assemblages. So what we will do, we will call out the lie which is the resilience of nature and that these things happen ordinarily. We'll say they don't happen ordinarily at this rate, at these levels, and there's no kind of chance for recovery. Elegy would definitely have a role to play in that because it speaks about how we might console ourselves with these losses and that question about consolation is really framed quite differently when we know it's quite hard to get back from the problems that we're creating. That would be the second. And the third one, I think, the future of Extinction Elegies would really be to stand shoulder to shoulder with the Extinction Rebellion campaign. It's something that is really important now, I think, Civil obedience is one of the biggest problems that we have in that we're saying everything's okay, whereas civil disobedience is clearly saying it's time for us to make a change. And I think as much as this is poetry and it's publications and it's voice recordings and radio, I think the listeners out there are really starting to understand the problem. And if we can contribute a little bit to that and help other people that are out there, then we'll be doing a good job. Mark Tradinic. Litany is a kind of list, but the word has a particular usage in a spiritual, religious kind of context, so it's kind of like a prayer um, in which there's a listing of the great virtues of God or you know, the wonders of creation, um, or sometimes a list of travesties. More generally, litany has fallen into more conversational use is just a kind of uh, almost like a whinge, like a like a, a ranting list, like a log of claims, uh, as in a litany of complaints. So I had both uses in mind. 
litany, an elegy for the children. Each tongue, it has been wisely said, speaks galaxies. And when a language dies, a world and all that has no other being elsewhere fails. A silence falls where there was song, where there was something known no other lyric grasps. Every species is a world of sound, a solid form of silence said, a body of thought. And with each dialect drowned, each lexicon beached, the world that is a universe of all these knowing realms knows less. The living world grows less alive. And we, who cannot find a patch of ground we do not need to claim, a wildness we do not need to tame, fall deeper alone the thicker we crowd the biomes, the thinner we shave the ways there are of being on this earth. And thought that flew like shorebirds once around the globe, refusing a single idiom or tide, idols, mean abstracted streets and lives off scraps the sated throw away. Our words are made of plastic now and end up in the sea, where stocks of wisdom, overfished and toxic with cliché, dwindle and cease. So what will there be left for us to say by way of remorse? What elegy, excuse or prayer when the sands along subtropic shores have grown so warm that no more male turtles hatch and make it to the sea. And who will we be, our language atrophied a little more, when Norfolk parakeets run out of trees to roost and fledge? And what will we grasp any more of sin when all the devils that we know have slipped the earth? And who will teach desire grace or passion poise when nothing burns the forests of the night, and when the last savannah elephant has scattered all the bones, what will we recall of grief when our turn comes to let our dear ones go? And how will all the plastic that will never go extinct school the seas in sanctity? What sense will awe begin to make when no blue whales swim the world around? And will our minds remember how to slow, how speeding, chill, when all the whale sharks have passed? Sea otter, snow leopard, curlew, bee. Divinity will be burlesque, and joy will be a sham, when all these bodhisattvas of the floating, hungry, thrumming world have left. O oh, person of the forest, orangutan, who might be any one of us who came down once from boughs, teach us, while there are still woods to be, how to be the woods, not just the trees. An elegy is always an act of love. It's an expression of grief for the passing away of something one has loved, and so it is an expression of love uh, in itself. In making the poem, the idea that our language has become plastic uh, 
that's a central idea. In other words, our language, our ways of understanding ourselves, the quality of our own lives and utterance suffers the more that we diminish the varieties of being on the planet is the idea. Of course, in the poem, sort of technically that phrasing about our words are made of plastic and end up in the sea moves the poet from uh, the world of the human and the cognitive into the actual world of the planet. That movement happens through that metaphor, so it's central in the making of the poem. I loved the fact that Orang Utan means person of the forest, uh, I think in the Indonesian. So it gave me a way of bringing the poem home, I suppose, back uh, from the animal realm into the human and just having us think that, you know, it is an evolutionary reference uh, there. We came down, we human beings, as we understand it, in the first place from the trees. So we were inhabitants of trees. We became inhabitants of the earth. And if we're not very careful, we'll be the end point of a lot of evolutionary life. Other species, particularly birds, show up in my poetry as a, a way of um, getting at some human truth or spiritual truth of existence. And in general, I suppose they're mostly figured in the poems for themselves as embodiments of delight and divinity. And so I guess what was different about writing uh, creatures and other beings as being in trouble and as exemplifying a larger great extinction that's quite probably going on all around us was a feeling of wondering whether it had as much value to express things as it were negatively uh, rather than writing a kind of poetry of celebration, which I suppose is what most of my poetry has been. But uh, I mean, I've been in this space for 25 years as a nature writer and eco-critic as well as a, a poet. And um, there's a lot of thinking in that field about how important it seems to be to balance a kind of celebratory art with an elegiac art. So if I've written more celebration than elegy, this kind of uh, is a counterpoint. The other thing, I suppose I had to find a way through my own grief because it did get me you know, thinking fairly gloomy thoughts. It's why I dedicated the poem to the children, because I'm thinking of my children and all children and what the future holds. But I suppose what I did in the poem by way of celebration and giving hope was shape the language so that the language, as far as possible, has beauty in it, in its speech music and rhythm and imagery, even if the sense that I'm making is a kind of sorrowful, melancholic kind of song. For more information on extinction elegies and to contribute your own extinction poem, visit redroompoetry.org. Extinction Elegies is produced by me, Prithvi Vatharajan, with music by Guillermo Bartiz. With thanks to our poets, experts, the Australia Council for the Arts and Create New South Wales. In the next episode of Extinction Elegies, The Loss of Australian Biodiversity, We'll hear from the poets Ali Cobby Eckerman and Stuart Cook, as well as from Sarah Beckersey, Professor of Environment and Sustainability at RMIT. Thanks for joining me for Extinction Elegies.